Turn with me now to the scriptures of the New Testament, to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke and the 22nd chapter. Now the 22nd chapter of Luke deals with the final Passover that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, took with his disciples and the institution of the Lord's Supper. At the beginning of the chapter, we have uh, the plot of Judas to betray Jesus, and then uh, the Passover itself and the institution of the Lord's Supper. But I want to take up our reading at verse 24. Verse 24 of Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny me, until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money, bag, or knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. He said, it is enough. We finish our reading there at the end of verse 38, and we trust that God will grant blessing upon these readings of his infallible and inerrant word. A couple of weeks ago, I was with our Glasgow congregation, celebrating with them the, uh, <clears throat> the Lord's Supper. And during that communion season, which 
for our brethren in Glasgow means four different addresses, one on the Friday night, one on the Saturday night, and then two on the Sabbath day. And so I looked at it at with them the 22nd chapter of Luke's Gospel, looking at the last Passover that the Lord Jesus Christ celebrated with his disciples and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And in the first three talks, the focus was entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship with his disciples. But the final address on the Sabbath evening focused more on the disciples rather than on the Lord himself. The spotlight now moves to the disciples. And so I thought I would look at that with you this evening uh, as we have enjoyed the Lord's Supper this morning. Now the Lord knew that very shortly he would be leaving them. He knew how distressed, how disorientated they would be and he wants to help them prepare for what would lie ahead of them. In one sense, I suppose, the time of the Passover, the time of the Lord's Supper, was somewhat unreal. It was a, a real experience for them, but it wasn't in the ordinary, common, run-of-the-mill day. But now they were going to leave, and they were going into the world, a different world, and the Lord wants to prepare them for what they would face after his departure. Now we're going to look at three very simple things this evening. First of all, we see the foolishness of the disciples. The foolishness of the disciples. It seems incredible that on such a solemn and serious occasion, because remember the Lord had said, that he was going to die. He had told them that somebody would betray him. It was a solemn and serious occasion. And it seems incredible that facing the death of their beloved master and teacher, that somehow the disciples would argue about precedence. They would argue about who was going to be the greatest, who was the most important. Now, there is some suggestion that this argument took place before the Passover meal, and it may well have been. But it doesn't really matter. Whether before or after the, me after the meal, it shows something of the condition of the disciples' hearts. More concerned with their own particular position amongst the apostolic band than they were about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he was teaching them. They evidently had not learned the lesson of servanthood. Remember, it was at this time that the Lord Jesus Christ took a towel and girded himself 
and got down on his knees and washed the disciples' feet. As he says in this, in this 22nd chapter, he says, Who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now when the Lord Jesus Christ said that to his disciples, they should have blushed for shame. They had seen their Lord and Master kneeling before them and doing the job of the most menial servant in the house. Now perhaps the disciples were looking forward to the time when Christ would no longer be with them. Who was going to lead this disparate band of people? Could they get the Lord Jesus Christ to appoint a leader so they would have someone to look to when he was gone? We don't know. But it demonstrates the foolish and selfish hearts of the disciples, of the disciples wanting to know who was going to be the boss, who was going to be the leader. So we see here in a few short hours before the Lord Jesus Christ will be crucified, they're arguing about themselves. Their focus was upon themselves and not upon Christ. Of course, that doesn't happen with us, does it? We're not like that. Are we not? Do we always, even after coming out of the Lord's Supper, is our focus upon him or upon ourselves? Are we more concerned about our position than his position? Sad to say, we are just as foolish as were the disciples. The second thing we want to see here this evening is the frailty of the disciples. We've seen the foolishness of the disciples, and we see the frailty of the disciples. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ assured his disciples that they would have a place in his kingdom. What a gracious response to such childish behavior. He then presents them with the stark reality that they would have to face after his death and resurrection. And we see that in verse 31. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now there's an important note that we, we, must, uh, we must remind ourselves of. The you there when he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you, that's in the plural. There are two forms in Greek of the you, singular and plural. So although the name Simon, Simon is used, the message 
was for all the disciples. Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you all that he might sift you as wheat. In the scripture, we read of sifting and we also read of refining. Now, there is a difference between refining and sifting. The sifting process is not the same as the refining that believers are told to expect. This refining, we are to be refined as fine silver or gold, this refining is a part of the plan of God to make Christians more holy as sinful behavior and sinful attitudes are stripped away. So we are refined so that we come out as pure gold, the scripture says. But the sifting is different, even though some of the methods used may be the same. The sifting is the work of the evil one. And it has the purpose of seeking to destroy the believer's faith. It has its purpose as seeking to cause the believer to sin. And the devil has many different ways of sifting the child of God. It may be by suffering. It may be through ill health and persecution. It may be by wealth. Seems a strange way to sift, doesn't it? And yet how often is the believer turned away from Christ by increased wealth or position? He becomes less zealous for Christ because he's more involved in the world and is more involved in protecting his position or his, or his wealth. The devil may sift us by popularity or position. Sometimes it's difficult to be a Christian when you're in a position of influence or power over other people. And it may be that the devil sifts some of his people through wealth or popularity or position. And no matter the method that is used, its purpose is always the same. It is always to turn the gaze of the believer away from Christ, to make him less Christ-like, to make him, uh, to make him more worldly. And this warning is addressed to all of the disciples. This is a message that comes to all believers, not just prominent ones, not just ministers and elders. It comes to all believers. It's as though the Lord would say to us this evening, Satan has desired to have you, to sift you, as wheat. 
You see, the last thing that the devil wants you to be is a loyal, faithful, believing Christian. The last thing the devil wants to see in your life is faithfulness to Christ. In your personal life, in your work life, in your family life, in your church life. And so the devil will seek to sift. We must always remember that Satan is a powerful enemy. There's another thing that we see here, and we see it also in Job, that Satan appears to have some access to God. For Jesus said, Satan has asked permission to sift you. Now, it's all in the purpose of God. But Satan made a similar request to God to test the faithfulness of Job. You remember, we we read the story. Satan appeared before God, and God said to Satan, Have you seen my servant Job? Have you seen how faithful he is? Have you seen how he lives? And Satan says, No surprise. Look at what you've done for him. Look at what you've given him. Look how prosperous he is. But if you take away what he has, he'll curse you to your face. You see, that was the purpose of the devil, to get Job to turn away from God. And that is the devil's purpose in our lives, to turn us away from God. He has many, many ways of doing it. Satan is a powerful adversary. But remember this. He is not God. He is not God. He is the prince or the ruler of this world. As we read in John chapter 16 and verse 11. He is the ruler of the powers or the authorities of the air, Ephesians 2 and 2. He blinds the minds of believers, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. And I want you to think about his power. He can take life. He took the life of Job's children. Job, in one day, lost all his children because the devil was attacking him. You see, God had said to the devil, you may do what you like with his and what he has, but don't touch him. The devil can take life. He can ruin a person's health. Didn't he do that with Job as well? After he'd lost everything he had, he came down with this horrible disease that set him apart from his friends and his neighbors. 
he can torment with demons. In Luke chapter 11, we see the, the demoniac. And it seems, if we look at Job chapter 1 and verse 19, that he can even cause natural disasters. We read that the, the wind came and blew down the house where his children were, were having their feast. And the fact that Satan has such power in the world should give a seriousness to our lives. A seriousness that perhaps unbelievers don't have. You see, they don't have to fear the devil because the devil has them. They don't have to worry about Satan because they are already in his power. But we do. We do as believers. He is not seeking to sift the unbeliever, but he's seeking to sift you. And he will sift you in all sorts of different ways. And he tries, he tries to cause us to fall. But we must always remember that in the case of Job and the case of Peter and the disciples, the devil has to apply to God for permission to test his people. So even when the devil tempts us and tests us and proves us and sifts us, we are not outside the care and control of God. God is still there watching out for his people and he will not allow them to be tested beyond what they are able. Satan is a powerful enemy. But then what we need to see here is that the disciples didn't know themselves. When Jesus told Peter that Satan wanted to sift him, the natural arrogance of Peter came to the fore. He was absolutely certain that no matter what the trial, no matter how difficult, he was absolutely certain that he would be able to stand against it. We see that in verse 33. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Sometimes Peter spoke before he engaged his brain. He didn't know himself. But it was not only Peter. We sometimes, I think, judge Peter harshly. It wasn't just Peter. It was all the disciples. They all said the same thing. Like most believers, the disciples underestimated their ability to withstand the kind of trials that were going to come to them. The ancient Greek saying, know thyself, is especially true when it comes to believers living in a very hostile world. And we do live in a very hostile world. 
Do we make the same kind of rash promise that Peter made? Lord, no matter what, I won't give in. No matter what, I'll remain faithful. We need to know ourselves. But the disciples didn't understand the trial that they would face. Although the disciples had faced the, and experienced the hostility of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees, they had also experienced the adulation of the crowd. Remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the crowds were thronging the streets and they were crying out, Hosanna, hallelujah, blessed is him that comes in the name of the Lord. It may well be that they thought that the opposition of the authorities would be offset by the approval of the crowd. You see, they could look back and they, they could see what happened as he came into Jerusalem. They said, look, everyone loves him. Everyone's on his side. So even if the authorities are against us, we'll have the crowd on our side. They could not have imagined in their greatest imagination the anger of the crowd shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. It was only a few days after they had shouted Hosanna, blessed is him that comes in the name of the Lord. A few short days later, there they are, the same crowd, the same people, shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. The same crowd who had praised the Lord Jesus Christ, then choose a robber in his place. You see, Peter himself had faced opposition, but only as a member of that apostolic band. When the full fury had been directed at Christ, it was Jesus that they were, uh, that they were annoyed with. It was Jesus that they hated. And although Peter was part of that apostolic band, in a sense they were a bit on the periphery. All the attention was focused upon Christ. But now, now he was to face a direct and personal challenge in the courtyard of the high priest, surrounded by a hostile crowd when there was nobody else to support him and strengthen him. There was nobody else there to stand with him. He undoubtedly, when he said this, he undoubtedly believed that he was able to stand any persecution for the sake of Christ. He undoubtedly believed that he could but when it came to it, he couldn't. When it came to it, he was weaker than he thought himself to be. 
When the reality came, his courage and his faith failed him. So they they didn't know themselves. They didn't understand the trials that they were going to face. And they didn't understand the power and the subtlety of the devil. And the Bible is quite clear that believers do not only face the malignity of sinful men, but as the Apostle later points out in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Remember then, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. He wants to make you fall. Do you know yourself? Do you know your weaknesses? You see, Satan won't attack you where you're strong. He won't come in to the fortified places. He'll come to the places where you are weak. Do you know yourself? Do you really understand the kind of trial, the kind kind of the kind of persecution that believers do face. We've been so blessed in this country. We have not had persecution for many, many years. But the time is coming, I firmly believe, when believers will face persecution, when they will be persecuted for their faith, It may not be in my lifetime, but for some of you here, it will be. Do we understand what we may have to face? Do we really understand the power and the subtlety of the devil? Do we tend to treat the devil as some sort of Halloween joke? with horns and a tail, something to make people laugh. Do we really understand the malignity and the evil and the power of Satan? Do we really know that we are in a warfare and we don't only wrestle against sinful men but against all the powers of hell? Thirdly and finally, the fortitude for the disciples. We have seen the foolishness of the disciples. We have seen their frailty. Now we see the fortitude that they are provided with. The Lord shatters the pride and self-confidence of Peter, telling him that he would very shortly deny him three times. But although he will fail, 
he would not be abandoned or forgotten. You see, the Lord prays for Peter. And it's interesting that the you, in this case, is singular. So he's praying particularly for Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And you notice here that both these things are in the past tense. Behold, Satan demanded to have you. When? We don't know. But I have prayed for you. So this transaction, if you like, had already taken place. And the Lord had prayed that Peter would be sustained. The outcome is certain. He says, when you have returned to me, not if you return to me, when you have returned to me. The Lord does permit his people to suffer the sifting of the devil. But just as he spoke so reassuringly to Peter and to the other disciples, he has given to his people great and precious promises that will fortify them and restore them when sifting and, tend, uh, and tempting, testing comes. One of the most precious of the promises that Christ gives to us is in Hebrews 13 and verse 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It doesn't matter if you can't see me. It doesn't matter if you can't feel me. It doesn't matter if all your trust seems to have gone. I will never leave you. The emphasis there is on Christ himself. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You may not feel my presence. You may not be aware that I'm here, but I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in John chapter 10 and verse 27 to 29, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. They shall never perish. They may doubt, they may stumble, they may fall, but they will never, ever perish because they are the sheep for whom Christ gave his life. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I like to think of the picture you know, when you have a, a very small child and the child is just beginning to walk, can take a few steps and then stumbles. And so to help the child maintain his balance, 
the father or mother would sometimes put down their hand and maybe stretch out their finger for the child to grip hold of. And the child walks, holding the finger of their parent. Now, you might do that at home, but you would never do it out in the street, would you? Because you know that the grip of that child on your hand is very fragile. It can easily be wrenched away. So when you have the child out in the street where all the traffic is, then you take your big hand and you take that small hand in your hand and you grip onto it so tightly. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ does with his people. We can so often lose our grip of him. We are so troubled and distressed by things that happen. We can easily lose our grip of him. But he says, I will never leave you. And no one is able to pluck you out of my father's hand. So the Lord prays for Peter and the other disciples. And then the Lord says that he will strengthen people, uh, Peter. Peter will fall. And no doubt, he and the rest of the disciples would experience great sorrow and bitterness because of that failure. But before that awful thing occurs, he is assured that he will repent and that he will return to the Lord. Christ knew the underlying faithfulness and his solidity and Peter's solidity in the faith that although he may fall, he would never make total shipwreck of the faith. And as the Lord knew Peter, so he knows every one of his own. So he knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows that you'll fall. He knows that you'll let him down. He knows all that. But just as he knew Peter, he reassures us that there is a way back. There is a way back. The Lord looked upon Peter and he wept bitterly. And he came back to the Lord. And as the Lord knew Peter, so he knows us. But then the final thing is this. The Lord had work for Peter to do. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And God often uses our fellow believers to strengthen us as we go through times of trial and testing. And the same Savior who promised that Peter would be strengthened after his fall and told him that in turn he would be able to strengthen his fellow believers is the same one today. We may fall. We may be sifted by the devil. And it may hurt. 
It may be a sore trial to us, and yet it's not the end. It's not the end, because although Satan is powerful, our Lord is stronger and more powerful. And he has promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us, and that he would never, never let go of our hand. He will always bring us through. And not only so, but he will be able to use us and our experiences to strengthen our, 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 our brethren. Imagine the influence of Peter when he could say to a saint going through trial, when he could say, look, I stood in the presence of my Savior and I denied that I knew him. Can your fall be as bad as that? And yet, and yet he restored me. And yet he has used me to strengthen others. You may fall, but you will come back. And when you come back from that trial, you will be able to strengthen others going through similar circumstances. And as we leave today, having sat at the Lord's table, let's remember what the Lord said to his disciples as they left that upper room, having celebrated the first communion service. <laughs>